Good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you, uh, and it's exciting uh, to be here in this new series in Samuel that we're starting. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. Uh, I see that a lot of people are sitting in new places because we've got these new seats. So everyone got shifted around out of your normal uh, comfort levels. Um, like I said, I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe, but um, in case you didn't know, and I think a lot of you might not know yet, I'm actually going on sabbatical next month. So I'll be gone for, for a couple months, um, and this is the last time I'll be preaching before I go on sabbatical. And what that means, if you don't know, it means that I'll be taking kind of an extended time of, of rest and focus on my relationship with the Lord and with my family. So uh, just in case you're newer and you're like, what happened to that guy who preached that one day? Like, is he still here? I am still around, but I won't be here for those couple months. Um, but we have other pastors as well, and uh, you'll be able to, to meet them. I wanted to thank the church and the, um, the elders and, and the members of the church for allowing me that season of rest and focus on relationship with the Lord. Like I said, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, um, and we just got started on this series. So I want to set the stage first. I want to kind of lay the groundwork. If you weren't here or you missed that first uh, week, last week, where we looked into the text, um, we started looking at 1 Samuel, chapter 1, and what we saw was the story of the book of Samuel begins with the story of this guy named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. Now, Hannah, um, she was infertile, right? She wasn't able to have children for a long time, but she prayed to the Lord. And God heard her, God gave grace to her, and she received a boy, Samuel. Now, before she received the boy, when she prayed, she said, Lord, if you would grant me to, to have a son, then I will give him to you to serve you all the days of his life. So, so when she gets Samuel, she goes to fulfill this promise, and she brings him to the tabernacle for him to grow up there under the care of the priest, and which is, like we talked about last week, kind of a strange thing, and, and it's difficult because it says in the text in 1 Samuel 1 that they did this as soon as he was weaned. Which is, which is kind of incredible to think about because my son, he, he's the youngest of my three kids right now, he is turning four. He's about probably the, the age that Samuel would have been when they brought him to the tabernacle to drop him off, three or four years old. She brings him there, a mother about to leave her only son to give him up to the Lord for all his days. And that leads us to verse Samuel 2. You can read it with me. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Are you the kind of person who enjoys poetry? It's kind of a funny question, right? I, you know, I know a lot of you, and I would assume that the answer is no for many people in this church. Are you the kind of person that enjoys poetry? Do you like to read poems? Do you even know what poetry is? Maybe you're having flashbacks to, to bad times in English class right now. Most literature that we read, including in the Bible, can be categorized as being written in one of two forms, poetry or prose. So why am I getting into this kind of uh, literature lesson? Poetry or prose? Song or story? Verse or paragraphs? And if you look at the passage we just read, uh, it's important for us to start here. Before we dive into it, you just look at it in your Bibles or on your phone or wherever you're looking, and it looks different, right? Like it, doesn't, it literally looks different. The way they arranged the words is different because this part of the book of Samuel is not written in prose, not the normal everyday way we talk. It's written poetically. There are different forms for how you can write literature, and the scriptures use these different forms of poetry and prose for different reasons. These verses, the way that they're arranged, are arranged as a poem or a song or in verse. And so, Zoe, we always talk about how it's our goal for you to learn to understand the Bible and and study on your own. And so before we get started, we need to address what is the point of writing something as a poem? What's the point of writing something in poetry? How are we supposed to understand that? We need to know the difference between these two forms. Okay, so like I already touched on before, prose is everyday language. Okay, just written in a manner in which you normally speak. So while there might be different genres in the Bible, like letters or narratives or histories or whatever, those are written normally in prose, just normal, straightforward language. But poetry is written in a more artistic manner. Genres that fall into poetry are like the Psalms or the Proverbs and some prophetic books as well. Now, both forms are used to convey information. Both forms are used to communicate with us. And as the scriptures, we need to understand what they're communicating But we have to see that they have different functions. They aren't exactly the same. They work differently. Just just think about it for a moment. Even if you don't love poetry, right? There's a difference between that like letter you might get after working at a company for 20 years that lists your accomplishments and a love poem that a husband writes to his wife. There's a difference in what they're trying to accomplish. So what exactly is the difference? If I could boil it down to one distinction, One simple distinction, I would put it this way. Prose, normal, everyday talk is meant to communicate from brain to brain. It's meant to communicate from my brain to your brain. But poetry is the form that is used to communicate from heart to heart. Poetry shows us what's happening on the inside. It invites us to unwrap the truth more and more, not just to like read it, but you're supposed to feel it. You're supposed to get a sense of of what is being experienced as you read, as you sing, as you hear a poem read aloud, through the images, through the contrast, even through the shape of the words themselves. And so, more so than in prose, the flow of the words, the sounds of the words, the images of the words matter. It's always meant to show us, not just tell us something. So, as we look at this text, 
Okay, all that to say, we need to approach this prayer recognizing that it's a prayer poem. It's poetry. It's maybe even a song that Hannah sang in her heart. And the reason for that, so we can understand Hannah's heart. We can feel what Hannah felt. That's the point. That's the purpose. So we can see Hannah's heart and understand what it reveals about God. So we're going to break down this prayer into three movements, okay? Three sections in this prayer poem where we see three convictions that Hannah has about the Lord who is God over all. The first conviction that we see is in verses one through three, where we see from Hannah's prayer, this poem that she knows the Lord is God over our lives, okay? The Lord is God over her life, the Lord is God over our lives. Let's look at the verses together. First Samuel one, uh, first Samuel two, verses one and two. Just starting in the first part of verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. So right there, what you see is that there's like these two lines that are in parallel. And, and this is important to Hebrew poetry. When you think about poetry, you probably think about like, I don't know, um, Dr. Seuss or something. I don't even know if that's poetry. But you think about rhyming. You think about uh, things sounding the same. And that's somewhat true in Hebrew poetry as well. Um, I don't speak Hebrew very well, if at all, but I went online and I listened to this text in the original Hebrew, someone reading it. And when you do that, you'll see that some of these words do rhyme. Some of these words, are, they sound similar to one another. That's kind of how the poetry works. And also, the length of the lines match up really well. In English, sometimes one line super long, one line short, but in Hebrew, it really matches up. So there's kind of this uh, cadence to the words, and you can see that in English. The translators have tried their best to do it. My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, the word exult just means rejoice, but they're showing us it's poetry. And this parallelism in the Hebrew poetry, it's not about rhyming words, it's about rhyming ideas. Okay, it's about two ways of looking at the same thing. So, in this case, uh, there's a picture of what's going on in Hannah that's represented by these two words, these two lines. My heart exalts, my horn is exalted. Now, the heart in Hebrew... We've talked about this a lot. It's not just the center of your feelings. It's not just where your emotions come from. The heart in Hebrew is, is your inner being. It's who you really, truly are. It's the person inside. Hannah says, my heart, who I am, fully rejoices in God. What about the horn? What does it mean for a person to have a horn? Um, it doesn't mean physically. A horn, obviously. It means strength. That's what it means. And you can imagine that for people living in that day and time, uh, if you think about the animal world, right, to have a, a big horn was a sign of strength. Um, have you ever been in someone's house who had, like, something mounted on the wall, like a deer? You guys seen that? You've, I mean, this is Texas, right? You've got you to gotta get out more. There's people in their house, they'll put up these animals that were hunted, and they never put up a deer that has tiny horns. They don't put up like the little tiny nubs. They put up the deer who has huge antlers, right? They put up the, the elk. They put up something that has these big horns because even now today, even though we don't talk this way, we get the feel that horn is a sign of strength. And so Hannah says, my heart, all I am, rejoices in God, and God is the source of my strength. See, in this story, Hannah has had all these things happen in her life so far. And, and they're not really that uncommon. Right, struggles with infertility, family drama, right, praying to God for something that you've wanted for so long, God even granting that prayer. They're not really that uncommon. But in all these things, Hannah is deeply aware 
that it's the Lord at work, that it's God at work in her life. And this is something that, that it, it's so subtle in one sense, but it's so life-changing because the reality is that we walk through our lives all the time and, and we don't think this way at all. Or we see these things happening to us and we think, oh, well, that person did this or, or I deserve this or that or, or this is because of my hard work or, or the things that I've planned. When these things happen in Hannah's life, she knows that it's God. It's God who is at work. It's the Lord who's God over her life in a personal way. It gives her joy and it gives her strength. Look at the next couple of lines. She says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Okay, so you start to see that there's these personal pronouns, right? My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, God. And it's like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, she kind of rejects those things that would otherwise cause her uh, concern and, and worry in the world. And she chooses to rejoice in God. She chooses to focus on him. It's what I'm reminded of in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, right? That, that he puts away all these things that he once valued and he treasures only knowing Christ. So this first stanza of her prayer is a reflection of how the circumstances of her life, all the things that she's gone through, even now her giving up her child, it's brought her to a place where she's worshiping God, where she's worshiping the Lord. As we go into the book of 1 Samuel, um, I love 1 Samuel because of all the Old Testament books, I feel like the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are the most interesting like in terms of a story. The story is just it's unexpected. Things will happen uh, over the course of these books that is just, it's like literature. Right? It's, like, it's like a great story. It's like Lord of the Rings. There's these things just happening and it gets into people's lives, into the details of their lives. And what we need to see is that while we go into all these details of people, it's all the story of what God is doing. Look at verse 2. Look at where the worship comes out. Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Again, these personal pronouns, there is none besides you. She knows the Lord is God over her life. There is a personal connection. Hannah knows God. Hannah has a God-centered focus. Hannah is someone whose identity, whose joy, whose strength is found in this relationship with the Lord. I know a lot of um, parents here are probably going to be crying mess when their kids grow up and, and leave for college, right? even as adults. Hannah is dropping off her three-year-old boy. It's a sad thing, right? I mean, of course, she's human, but she rejoices. She's happy. In God. She exalts in the one who has strengthened her. So if we understand what is going on in this first part of this passage, I think it leads us to two questions. The first question is, do you actually know God the way that Hannah knows God? Do you know the Lord is God over your life or, or is God just kind of distant? Right, right. You have this general belief in him, but you don't recognize that God is at work in your life, drawing you to himself in order that you might turn away from your sins and have a relationship with him. Have you experienced that truth in your life? Do you recognize that he wants what's for your good and for his glory? This is what every Christian needs to understand, right? Every Christian needs to be converted. Every Christian needs to come to an understanding 
and personal knowledge of God. But the second question, if the answer is yes, is are you happy? Are you happy? If you know God, are you happy? And I think even to ask that question might be uncomfortable for a lot of Christians in this world. You say that you know God. You say that you, you know all these things about God, but are you happy in him? Do these verses resonate with you? Do you read this poetry and, and your heart is saying, yeah, I exult in God too, or does it sound like, I don't know what she's talking about. That's foreign to me. And maybe it's painful or uncomfortable or awkward to ask because the truth is you aren't really that happy. And it's kind of a thing that hurts. Everyone knows that human beings desire happiness. Everyone knows that human beings want to be happy. And yet we also know, if we're honest, that it's so elusive. That so many of the people who you think should be happiest in the world are deeply sorrowful. There's a looming, unshakable sadness to them. And sometimes we even give up on the idea that we can be happy. But that's not what Hannah does here. Right? This, this verse is pretty clear, if you read it, that Hannah is happy in God. Now, make no mistake, Hannah had her share of sorrow, right? She was crying last chapter. She's had times of sadness. She has lamented before the Lord. And we've talked about lament, bringing your sorrows to God. But if you read these verses, read this prayer, read this poem, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This poetry shows us that Hannah is happy in him. So what's the disconnect for, for us if we don't understand that happiness? Well, I think we misunderstand where happiness is supposed to come from. Sometimes I think that we've given up happiness to the prosperity gospel. What do I mean by that? The prosperity gospel is a false teaching where uh, people tell you that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wiser. He wants you to have all the blessings of the world. And if you just give him the right amount of faith, if you just give the right amount of money, then God will be forced to bless you in these physical ways. And that is a false teaching. That is heretical. That is wrong. But to expect that a relationship with God will make us happy is true. It's not because we have all those things in the world, but it's because we have God. The Bible paints the picture that those who know God, like Hannah, are happy. Not healthy all the time and, and definitely not wealthy all the time, but full of joy all the time. George Whitfield, the great preacher, once Put it this way, okay? And George Whitfield, he's a guy known for fire and brimstone, okay? He's not uh, your prosperity gospel. This is what he said. He said, Does Jesus want your heart only for the same end as the devil does to make you miserable? No, he only wants you to believe on him that you might be saved. This is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy, that you may leave your sins to sit down eternally with him. See, the problem with our lives often is that our unhappiness drives us to try to seek that in the world, in the sins of this world, instead of understanding that we're supposed to find that happiness in God. In God alone, there is none besides him. We try sometimes to separate happiness from joy. Have you guys heard that? Like, joy is not the same as happiness, because happiness is just, like, from the circumstances, but joy is um, coming from relationships, or joy is on the inside. And, and I understand what people are trying to do, 
But the Bible never says that you can be an unhappy Christian. Christians of all people should be happiest. Now, hear what I'm not saying, okay? Or don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you won't ever be sad. Like, sorrow is appropriate. And it's right. Sadness is good. It's natural. There are things we ought to be sad about. But do you realize, and this is, this is kind of something that, that I didn't realize for a long time, sadness and unhappiness aren't the same thing. What do I mean by that? Being sad about leaving your father and mother to be joined to your wife doesn't mean you're supposed to be an unhappy husband. Being sad about the sin in this world, the brokenness that we see, suffering and even pain, doesn't mean that we're supposed to be unhappy with God who reigns over it all. At the same time, we are sad about those things. As Hannah shows us, we're happy in the Lord. And when we see that, when we see God as God over our lives, that's when we can say that we rejoice. That's when we can praise, that's when we can worship the way that Hannah does. She's not happy about losing Samuel, okay? That's not what the verses say. Like, I exult that my son's never going to see me except once a year. I exult in the Lord. What we need as Christians is the mindset of Hannah's poem of prayer, of where our joy and happiness is found. For those who know God, we should be happiest of all people. My first job out of college, I was... um, I was a young guy, okay? So what I mean by that is I went to work at a publishing company and literally everyone who worked with me was twice my age, at least. And um, the reason they hired me is because, uh, not because I was super mature, but because they wanted someone to do internet stuff. And they didn't know how to do it. So they hired me out of college and, and everyone was just, um, it was hard to make friends. Okay, I don't know what to talk with them about. They would look at me and be like, oh, what do you think about uh, my daughter trying to find a husband? I was like, I don't know, I don't know anything. Um, but... There was this one older lady who sat right next to me. Her name was Debbie. And um, she was just, uh, she was kind of like a funny mom to me. She would, she would always take care of me, but also every time I came in late to work, she'd be like, mm-hmm. So she'd always make this loud sound to kind of show me like, hey, what's wrong with you? Um, so Debbie, she was quite a bit older. Um, I learned a lot from her. And uh, about a year after starting the job, um, her husband died unexpectedly. And I, I remember I was talking with her, and, and you know, I'm, I'm like 22 years old. I, I'm not used to having friends who are in their uh, late 60s, but I was talking to her, and, and I was seeing how she was responding to it. And I remember I was at the funeral, and, and I just said, you know, like, you're handling this amazingly well. And I remember she told me, I don't know how those who don't know the Lord can do this. See, so she could weather the storm with joy and strength because she knew the Lord. So we see in Hannah's life here as well. Amy Carmichael once said, we are called to a settled happiness in the Lord whose joy is our strength. Hannah's prayer, her song, shows us that she understands the Lord is God over her life as an individual and it leads her to happy, joy-filled worship. And that leads us to the next part of the poem. Okay, in verses 3 through 8, where Hannah's poem of prayer shows us her conviction that the Lord is not just God over her life, but also God over this world. Okay, the Lord is God over this world. 
How would you explain to someone who you had just met, maybe, um, how to make it in the world? It's an interesting question, right? What would you tell someone if they asked you, how does this world work? How do I figure out the world? Would you give them a book? Would you point them to a certain resource? Would you say nothing? Well, we'll kind of see what maybe we should be saying as we we look along. In this prayer, in this poem of Hannah's, we see in verses 3 through 8 a series of, of pictures that help us feel what the world is really like. And the point that Hannah makes is that it's different than we might expect. Look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So what Hannah essentially says is, if someone asks you how does the world work, just don't answer. Don't say anything. Be quiet about what you don't know. Instead, watch, listen, see. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. What's the image here? What's, what's the feeling we're supposed to get from these verses of poetry? There are things that we can't predict will happen in the world. Things in this world, they don't always work out the way that we think they will. Right, this, this poem is kind of like the ancient um, Hebrew version of Alanis Morissette's ironic song. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's this quick succession of things that show that we think things should go one way, but they go another. They're reversals. Right? The bow was a weapon that required great strength to wield. Yet the mighty is fallen. His bow is broken. And the one who was once feeble and had no strength has now put on strength, has now become the one in charge. Those who had all they needed now find themselves on the other side looking in on the brink of starvation, struggling to survive while those who had nothing at all were hungry are now full and satisfied. And in a very appropriate way to Hannah's situation with her and Penina, the one who was barren with no children has born seven. And now that's not talking about Hannah because she didn't have seven kids, right? But seven is the number of fullness. So the barren woman now is full and the one who had had many children before is full of sorrow and loneliness. She's forlorn. The world doesn't work the way that we think. You know, I had a friend growing up, um, like a family friend. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's a kind of friend where you call them your cousin, but really they're, they're not your cousin. They're just, you see them all the time. Your parents went to college together. And my dad and his dad went to college together. And I always thought he was the coolest guy ever. Because on the one hand, he was the oldest of our group of friends. Um, he, was, he was tall to me. I was, I was probably like six. So he was tall to me. Um, he was good looking. He was good at sports. He was popular. He was just kind of the cool older brother I didn't have who I wanted to be like. And I remember um, when he went to college, and I was probably in, um, I was probably 14 when he went to college. And that first year in college, he was driving down in San Diego, and he got in a car accident, and he died. And it was the first time in my life, though people had died before in my life, it was the first time that I had ever had that feeling of, like, that's not how it's supposed to be. That wasn't supposed to happen to him because he was the guy who was going to be the best of us all. He was the one who was going to pave the way for us, our friend group, our family group. 
And then I remember he was sitting, or his dad and his mom, they came to our house shortly after he passed away, and they were sitting with my parents, and they were crying, obviously, and they were sad. And, and they decided that they were going to adopt a new daughter from overseas to kind of fill the void that they had in losing their son. And so they adopted this daughter. And the year after they adopted this daughter, my auntie was diagnosed with cancer. She passed away before this daughter even was weaned, before this daughter was even old enough to not have to have her diapers changed. See, in this world, in a moment, fortunes can and do change. Hannah's prayer forces us to be honest about that fact. In our arrogance, human beings, we want to figure out the world, don't we? How many things, how many people, how many voices out there, they want to tell you about how the world works. Yet the Bible shows us, and Hannah's poem shows us, that we can't do it. As human beings, we don't know it all. We're not in control. And this is where Hannah goes in this poem. Even though things seem so chaotic, God is in control of it all. Look at verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What's Hannah saying here? What she's showing us? The world seems crazy. The world seems chaotic. The world seems out of control, but it's not. It's under God's sovereign control. Nothing that happens as unexpected or as Strange or cruel of a twist of fate as it seems to us, nothing happens outside of the governing control of God. The Bible makes no exception that God is sovereign over everything. That's what Hannah says here. The Lord, who is God over our lives, is also God over this world. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. Even life and death are in his hands. Riches and poverty, exaltation and humiliation are all under the sovereign care of God. Verses 3 through 8 show us that we don't know anything, but it's okay, because God does. In a world where God is sovereign, where the Lord rules over all things, the proper response isn't to try to figure out more and more of the world, but to humble ourselves before him. James 4.12, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As verse 8 ends, there's a new picture that shows us why humble dependence on God is more valuable than being mighty or rich or or what we might call conventionally blessed, okay? The reason dependence on God is better is because there's no surety in any of those things in the world. All of those things can be taken away in a moment's notice, but God is always in control. God is always reigning over this world. Hannah's prayer poem shows us a humble, unshakable faith. And so the question for us in light of that is, are you living a life of faith? Where are you putting your faith and your trust in? Are you growing in trust in God? Or are you feeding trust in all sorts of things that don't deserve your faith? Right now, the world seems crazy. Okay, like, there's no two ways about it. Unfortunately, I watch and read a lot of news. 
Okay, I, I read a lot of stuff online, and the world feels crazy. And people feel like the world is crazy, and things are happening that people are always trying to figure out what's going to really happen, what's really going on. And all these, these voices and all these people talking to you, telling you they know what the world is up to, they're selling you a false faith. As your pastor, I need to tell you that. They're selling you something false because only God is in control. Only God knows what will happen. And whatever does happen, he knew it already. Christian, you don't need to have a theory of everything. You don't need to have the knowledge and confidence and assurance that this talking head knows what is right. You need to know that God is completely in control. Where do you go when you first hear something that disturbs you? That's, that's, that's what reveals your heart. Where do you go when you first hear something that makes you get shocked or, or disturbed or, or questioned? Do you go to Google or YouTube or some forum online or do you go to Scripture? And here's the thing. When you go to Scripture, the Scripture is not going to tell you that so-and-so a person is the one you should listen to or that this thing is going to happen politically or geopolitically or whatever. The Scripture is going to tell you God is in control because that's what you need to know. That's what you need to hear. That's what Hannah knew, and that's what she shows us in these verses. She knows that God is sovereign, and he is good. The pillars of our faith are these two truths. God is sovereign, and he is good. That thing might happen, that economic policy might fail, that that person might turn out to be evil. God is sovereign. And he is good. Do you know that the Lord is God over this world? Do you have the conviction that Hannah's prayer poem conveys? We don't have to figure out the plan. We have to trust the one who's planned it all. And this is where the prayer poem of Hannah leads next and finally. From worship to faith, finally to hope. To hope. From knowing the Lord is God over our lives to seeing he is God over the world, and lastly, to showing that God, the Lord, is God over the future. This is verses 9 through 11. The Lord is God over the future. If you look at these last verses, you'll notice as we read them that the tense of the verbs change. Okay, so it goes from the present tense to future tense. In these last two verses, everything is about what God will do on kind of a big global scale. So look at verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The change in tense from present to future shows us the heart of a person who hopes confidently in the Lord because he knows the Lord is in control over everything that will happen. The song moves from what Hannah knows is true now to kind of this bigger sphere. Everything in the world and everything that will happen in the world, it's this eternal scale. God's sovereignty extends over all times and places. As we read these verses, uh, what strikes me about it as as I see what Hannah's doing is just this confidence she has in God. It's a feeling of sure and steady hope. It's not a song of doubt. It's not a song of, maybe God will do this. She knows that God is going to do something in the future for her that's amazing. 
We live in an age, I think, um, where a lot of people like to talk about not having certainty, embracing the mystery, lacking confidence in things. And, and I understand you want to be humble. But when we go to the Lord, when we go to his word, what he says he's doing, we should have the utmost confidence in him. We should have sure and steady hope. The Lord will never fail. Now, let me be uh, clear here. Okay, I'm not talking about like special revelation to you, like, like dreams or prophecies. Um, again, th- this past week, I was concerned um, about this for the church at large. Not necessarily for our church, but for the church at large. Like, I'm a pastor, right, obviously. Um, and Google knows everything about me because they're spying on me, right? So when I go online, they, they suggest to me all these Christian stuff, right? They just know that, I don't know, that's what they suggest. And I go to YouTube, and this week, there were all sorts of prophecies being suggested to me. I don't know why, but I assume it's because they're popular. They're being watched by people. All these false prophets online telling us to put hope in what God has shown them in a dream he's going to do. What God has given them a word that he's going to do. And this is just a side note, but again, as a pastor, I need to warn you against people who do those things. Okay, that is the definition of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's a claim that he told you these things, he showed you these special things that don't come true, that are false, that that ruin people's faith. But here, when Hannah hopes in the Lord, it's not about a special dream she had. It's not about a, a premonition that she's thinking about. She's talking about what God has promised to do on, on a grand and global scale. She's talking about what she knows God will do because this is what God has been planning to do since Genesis 3. He's been talking about it in the Bible all along. She doesn't just stop at this mini victory in her life where her and Penina had this argument and now she has a kid and like, take that. Right? She goes to God's big plan. She goes to the gospel. Look at verse 9, okay? And we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 kind of all together and to wrap it up. <clears throat> he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The word for faithful ones here in Hebrew is the word for those who receive God's hesed. We've talked about that word a lot in the Hebrew Bible. The word hesed is the word for God's covenant love. It speaks of relationship, of loyalty, of God's commitment and trustworthiness to his people. And so what Hannah says is God will guard the feet of those who are recipients of his covenant love, his hesed. What does that mean? It's not about them. It's about God. It's not about them. It's about what God has promised. God will save his covenant people. On the flip side, and what we see in these verses as well, is that God will judge everyone. The wicked will be cut off in darkness. In verse 10, the enemies of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And the word for wicked in the Hebrew is a word that means guilty. So the, the, the idea that's coming out really is judgment. On the one hand, God is going to save his people who receive his covenant love, but there's judgment coming. The guilty shall perish in darkness. And when it says that the your Lord will thunder against them, thunder is seen in the Old Testament as the voice of God. And so there's this idea of this loud, fearful verdict of judgment that comes against all the world. And yet... The covenant people of God are guarded. The guilty are condemned and punished from the ends of the earth, Hannah says. Every sinner will be held accountable. But those who receive God's hesed will be safe. 
How do those two things happen? They come together through God's king. This is where Hannah's poem has been leading, to this final picture, and you see it in verse 10 at the end. Right? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word for anointed here is the Hebrew word for Messiah, which is translated in Greek as Christ. Hannah's song lets us feel the widening of the scope of God's sovereignty from just her life to this world to what he's doing in all of history, in all of creation. There's something so much bigger than just Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel happening. First, and, and we're going to see this in First Samuel, there's echoes of David who's going to come, right? There's echoes of this earthly king who's going to be a good guy who will save Israel and defeat the Canaanite enemies. But more than that, what Hannah talks about here really is an echo of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, the ultimate king who God would finally send to save his people from their sins and defeat the greatest enemy of all, death. How do we know this? Okay, Just a couple of things to point out in this verse. First, Hannah says it's not by the might of man that someone will prevail, or it's not by might that a man will prevail. But then she says God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So I think that even just in that, there's a decent clue that the anointed of God who we truly need isn't just a mighty man. It's not just a really strong guy. He's much more than that. And then secondly, how do we know from Scripture that Hannah is pointing us to Jesus? Well, in our Scripture reading today, we read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and Mary's song in response to her being told that she was going to give birth to Jesus. And her song is pretty much a reflection of Hannah's song. It reflects all the same themes of God's great plan, not just for the life of Mary or the life of Hannah, but for all of creation, to save his people from their sins so that he would receive the glory. This is what the gospel is about. The gospel tells us that the world is broken because we're all sinners. The gospel tells us that we are rebels who deserve God's wrath. The gospel tells us that one day, Jesus will return. God will judge every person who's ever lived for their sins. The wages of sin is death and separation from God. The gospel tells us that he sent Jesus, his son, to be the king we need. He sent Jesus to live the life we could never live, to die on the cross for our sins, to take our place bearing the punishment and God's wrath so that if we believe in him, we might be forgiven and saved and have eternal joy and life with him. See, it's not a stretch at all to say that Hannah is gospel-focused. Hannah looks forward in steadfast hope to the gospel, to Jesus, to God's redemption. Dale Ralph Davis, he's a commentator, he wrote this. Every time God lifts you out of the miry bog and sets your feet upon a rock is a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God, a down payment of the full deliverance, the macro salvation that will be yours at last. The things that happen in your life, the things that so clearly show that God is at work are not the confirmation that God is all about you. 
It's the confirmation that you belong to God. Do you understand the difference? It's not about you, but you belong to God. You get to receive these things because of his covenant love, because of his greatness, because he is the great one. Not because we're special, but because God has done the greatest thing in Jesus. So there's this clear movement in this prayer from the personal to the universal to the eternal. It's a picture of the heart of someone who knows what God looks like. It's a picture of a heart that says less of me and more of him. This is what Hannah's song closes with, a focus on God's plan, on God's greatness, on God's salvation, on God's gospel. So the question for this last point is, are you living a life of hope? Not about what will happen to you, not about whether that job situation will change next week, but hope about what God will ultimately do for his glory. Are you living in light of the big picture that you get to be a part of? Do you have hope that lifts your perspective out of just what's happening right now in your life to what God is ultimately doing? Does the gospel give you the hope you need? And a lot of times in my life, I find that that's not the case. And the reason is I'm not even thinking about the gospel. I'm preaching about it on Sundays, but in the day-to-day of my life, as I walk through life, I'm not thinking about people's eternal destiny. I'm not thinking about whether or not heaven or hell is waiting for this person. I don't think about whether or not they're right with God. I just think about, oh man, is this guy going to charge me more than he should today? Or is this guy going to be an interference to my life? We need the perspective that Hannah has. This gospel focus that gives us the right kind of hope. To put ourselves in the context of what God will do. Not through any earthly savior, but through the Messiah who has already come already died for our sins, already been resurrected, and will one day come again to judge the earth and save his people. Let's look at the final verse together. Verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. As the song ends, we're kind of pulled back. We're, we're out of the poetry. We're back to the normal narrative of the passage. We're pulled back from seeing Hannah's heart to being reminded of what was happening in that time. Elkanah goes home, Hannah goes home, Samuel starts to serve the Lord, and we're going to find out what all that has to do with in the coming weeks. But the words of Hannah's poem have given us what we need to understand what comes next rightly. First Samuel is a book of all these personal stories of unpredictable twists, of reversals, of all these changes, but it's a picture, it's a story of the Lord who is God over all about God bringing to pass what only he can do. So the response of our hearts should be Hannah's response. It should be worship. It should be faith. It should be hearts full of hope because of the Lord. Not focusing on Hannah, Samuel, Eric, ourselves, but focusing on the God of our lives, who is the God of this world, who is the God of the future. The Lord is God over all. There is no rock like him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I ask, Lord, that these words, um, as um, imperfect as my words are, Lord, that your words of truth from the scriptures would fill our hearts with a proper response. I want to pray especially, Lord, for, for those who are struggling with 
unhappiness in their lives, Lord, that they might find joy in you. To understand that that doesn't free us in this world right now from sadness, but you do promise that one day there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more suffering that you will wipe away every tear. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to find happiness in you. Help the gospel to be real in our lives. I want to pray for those who are struggling with faith, God. I pray that those who, who, who realize that their faith is so easily placed in things of this world, instead of in, in your word, would, would repent of that. They would turn away from placing their hope in false things, in, in people who cannot bear the weight of that faith. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts through your spirit to trust in you, to be concerned about what you say, your truth, to trust that you're in control. Lord, help us to understand that this world, it seems crazy, and it's not that anyone in this world is in control, but you are in control. You sit on the throne. You are enthroned forever. Help us to trust that you are sovereign and you are good. And Lord, lastly, I pray for those who during this time have have realize maybe even today that they lack hope that that day by day moment by moment the decisions that they make are are based on just the temporal what might give me the most pleasure today what might help me survive another minute instead of seeing our lives in the grand picture and story of what you are doing help us to remember that the small Ways in our life in which you show yourself to be great and faithful are, are, just, are just down payments, small dividends that remind us that you've done it all. At the end, when you come to judge the world, those who have put our hope in you don't have to fear. That we will be redeemed, that we will be changed in a moment that we will be freed from the sin that so easily entangles us, that we will be freed from the, the, the things that cause us so much strife and, and, and suffering now, that we will be in your presence forever. And it won't be for our glory, but for yours. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.